0: Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Psalm 67, find your way there. If you're not too familiar with the Bible, know that the book of Psalms is one of the biggest books in the Bible. It's kind of located in the center of it, so if you just open the middle, you, chances are you may land in Psalms. Otherwise, there is a table of contents at the beginning of every Bible that I encourage folks to use to help them navigate and find their way through this, through this book, Psalm 67. Now there are 52 weeks in the year, and no, no week is more significant than this week that we are stepping into. Now, I know that sports fans want to say last week is the most significant week because last week is a big sports week. It's an exciting week. You had the championship NCAA basketball game. You had opening day for Major League Baseball, which is something I get really excited about. And then, of course, you had the Masters tournament this weekend. And, and so last week, yeah, that's a good week. But, but it doesn't compare to what this week represents. This is the week because this is what's referred to as Passion Week. It's the week whereby we commemorate and celebrate the uh, gospel, the events of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. You see, this Sunday is commonly referred to as Palm Sunday, and it's the Sunday where Christians all over the world uh, think about the moment Jesus entered Jerusalem, riding on a colt in humility, coming to serve, not to be served. And you know that as he entered Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he went there for a reason, and a couple of days passed while he was rolling with his disciples, and then comes Thursday, and and he brings his disciples into the upper room, and he shares a meal with them, what we now refer to as the Last Supper, and through this meal, he explains to them the meaning of his death, and what will be accomplished the next day with his crucifixion and then later that night he is betrayed by one of his best friends. He is arrested by some Roman officials. He is sent before Pilate, tried and sentenced to death. And then comes Good Friday where Jesus is led to the cross and he's nailed there, crucified for all to see. Shame. Suffering. Suffering. Oppression, injustice, everything rolling down upon Jesus as he's hanging on the cross and he would die there. After being, after being crucified, who would then be buried in a tomb, and a couple of days would pass, these days of just deep darkness for the disciples who had entrusted their lives to this Jesus who is now buried. He's in this tomb, and they're wondering, well, uh, we, we've put our hopes in this Jesus, and now he's dead. What do we do now? Is there any hope for the people of Israel? And even beyond that, is there any hope for the peoples of the world? And, and then, you know, the story would roll on into Sunday morning, and What we refer to as Easter Sunday, Jesus would step out of the tomb, he would resurrect, he would do something that no other human being has ever done in this world, and he would step out of the tomb, victorious over sin, victorious over Satan, victorious over death, accomplishing our salvation once and for all, but understanding that this salvation that he accomplished with his resurrection is a salvation that is intended to be proclaimed to all the peoples on the planet. That this news of his crucifixion and resurrection is too good to stay confined to one people group or confined to one small group of Jewish men and women in the first century. So Jesus would then meet with his disciples and he would... Rally them together and say, look, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. I need you to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. I need you to go tell the world what I've done for them. I need you to go show the world my love for them. I want you to go and engage and love and serve and bring this gospel to all the peoples in the world. And it is ultimately that thrust that cultivates our value of global mentality. It's why we want to think globally as a people. It's why we want to think about all the peoples in the world. This is why, as you and I breathe the gospel into our lives, as we're believing the gospel, trusting the gospel, walking by faith in the gospel, what happens in our hearts is the borders and the boundaries of our hearts begin to expand. And as the borders of our hearts expand, they do so to include all types of people. So that we would journey through this world with a compassionate concern for everyone. Wanting everyone to come to believe the gospel. To see the love that God has for them in Jesus. To trust in the goodness of God as it is showcased in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So when it comes to having global mentality as a value, we are praying for God to... Light our souls with the gospel in such a way that broadens the borders of our hearts so that we might love the peoples in Seattle and we might love the peoples throughout the world in light of these realities. And one of the reasons why I want to jump into Psalm 67 this evening is because Psalm 67 is one of these beautiful, prayerful uh, songs that the people of Israel would pray together and sing together regularly in light of uh, what they anticipated God doing for all the peoples in the world. It's a phenomenal prayer. If you notice in verse 1, you have this, this moment where the writer is, is voicing a prayer. He says, "May." May God be gracious to us, referring immediately to the people of Israel. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Making these requests of God. God, I want you to be gracious to your people. I want you to bless your people. I want you to let your face shine upon your people. This this avalanche of goodness that they are asking God for. There are basically three parts into that, isn't there? You see the word grace there. Some of your translations might say mercy. God, be merciful to us or be gracious to us. There's there's an appeal for that. But then it goes on. I I don't just want you to be gracious to me or merciful to me. Or you might say, God, I don't just want you to forgive me of my sins. That's great. But the audacity of this psalmist to press in and to request more from God than just grace and mercy. He goes on to say, not only do we want grace from you or mercy from you, we don't want you to treat us as our sins deserve. We want you to bless us. We want you to bless us. We want you to give us things that would amount to your blessing in our lives, whether that comes in the form of relationships or resources. One of the things about this psalm is if you look down to verse 6, the writer refers to how the earth is yielding its increase. This was a psalm that they, they would pray and sing together at harvest time every year. And they would look out and they'd see the harvest field there and how things were ripe for the harvest, that God was providing increase. He was giving them food. The, the, the earth was, was giving the people of Israel provision. And they would see that and they would say there's blessing. God's blessing in our nation is, are these resources that he's entrusting to us. And so the psalmist would ask for that. Be gracious to us, but then he also says to bless us, but he goes one step further. He goes on to quote what, what is found in Numbers chapter 6 when the priest Aaron would stand before the people of Israel and he would make this request, God, would you let your, sh- your face shine upon your people, which is a way of saying, God, would you favor us? Would you let us know that you are for us and not against us? Would you let us know that you've got our back? Would you let us know that you are in our corner? Would you let us feel the warmth of your affection for us? I mean, it's just an avalanche of rich goodness. God, be gracious. God, bless us. God, let your be, would you favor us? This is what they're asking for. And it's just an avalanche of a prayer accentuating the goodness of God and the audacity of this psalmist to see God in this way. Here's one image I like to share with people to kind of showcase this, this avalanche of goodness. And I've shared this with some of you before, but it's not unlike that, that kid who was playing outside in the mud and, and he goes to grandmother's house and he forgets to take off his shoes and so he just tracks mud all into the carpet of the living room and He walks in, tracking mud everywhere, and he knows he's not supposed to. He's been told time and time again that when you come into grandmama's house, you take your shoes off. You don't track mud on the carpet, but he, in his enthusiasm, zeal, occupation with other things, he just comes running in and tracking mud all over the place, and he goes into his bedroom, shuts the door. Next thing he knows, he hears his grandmother calling his name, and and he can't resist Grandmama. When well, grandma says, come, you come. And so he eventually kind of gingerly leaves his room, realizing that he probably left a mess in the living room. But by the time he leaves his room and he comes back in the living room, he, he sees that the mud on the carpet's gone. It's no longer there. And he looked over and he sees some cleaning supplies in the corner. And, and he begins to think, well, my grandma must have, she must have got down and scrubbed the floor clean. My grandma must have, Took care of the mess that I made, and and then he moves through the living room and enters the kitchen, and Grandma's sitting there at the table. And when he looks at her, he does not see on her face a look of scorn. Instead, he sees Grandma sitting there, and she says, "Come here." And he comes, and she says, "Have a have a seat." And he takes a seat at the table, and the grandma gets up, runs over to the refrigerator, opens the door, sees inside this this slice of chocolate cake that she had made in a previous day, and. And she grabs the cake, she brings it out, she sets it before her grandson and gives him a fork and says, "'Eat.'" But then on top of that, it's not just, here's some chocolate cake. I mean, grandmama's a good grandmama. She knows that if you're going to eat chocolate cake, you need some milk to wash it down. So she goes and gets a glass, and she fills that glass with milk, and she comes and gives him milk. And this, this avalanche of goodness towards her grandson, as she not only cleaned up the mess that he made, not only withheld punishment from the boy, she on top of that gives him chocolate cake, that's blessing. She on top of that gives him milk, that's favor. It's this avalanche of goodness, this avalanche of richness as grandmama loves her boy so much that she would treat him so well. And you think about this dynamic in our own lives as we are followers of Jesus living on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You know that in the gospel, it's not just about our sins being forgiven. Yes, that's important. Yes, we want that. Yes, God, forgive us of our sins. Be gracious, be merciful. Yes, we look to the cross as the solution, uh, as God cleaning up the mess we make in the world. We do see that, but there's more to it. This avalanche of goodness, God not only forgiving the sins of his people, but God being willing to bless his people, to give us things to enjoy, relationships and resources, blessings in our lives, provision in our lives. But then on top of that, it's not just blessing, there's favor there. There's a God who looks upon us and smiles perpetually. Because when he looks upon his people today, he's not looking directly at us, he's looking at us through Christ. This is precisely how the writers of the New Testament would understand the gospel. You get into Ephesians chapter 1 and listen to some of this language that Paul would use to describe these gospel realities that we have received. It says in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then you drop down to verse 7. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he has lavished upon us. Grace upon grace, an avalanche of goodness coming our way in Christ as a result of his death and resurrection. You get into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and you read a similar statement where Paul says, For God, who said, let light shine out in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, blessing, and favor coming to us in Jesus. Jesus is the, is the ultimate answer to the prayer of Psalm 67.1. Jesus is why you and I tonight can pray this prayer and pray with confidence, knowing that God is ready and willing to answer the prayer that He would that we would receive His grace, His blessing, and His and His favor because we are in Christ. But notice the point and the purpose of that prayer, because some of you might hear that and you may be tempted to think, okay. Christian life, the Christian life, my salvation, the life that I'm living in this world right now is all about me. It's all about me and my forgiveness. It's all about me and my blessing or God's provision in my life. It's all about me and my favor with God. But notice what's driving the psalmist in this prayer. It's not just him asking this for his own sake or for the people of Israel's sake. He's asking for these things for a purpose. This is a worshiper who's The borders of his heart have expanded and he understands the reason God has been so good to him as well as the people of Israel. And as you and I are gathered here in the church today, we need to understand the reason why God has been so good to us in Christ, us in the church. And it's found there in verse two. Why has God forgiven your sins? Why has God blessed you? Why has God shown you favor? Why do you have the privileges you have as it relates to the gospel, being able to hear it and grow in it? Why do you have the jobs that you have, the resources you have, the relationships you have? Why do you enjoy the life that you may be enjoying in this moment? Well, verse two tells us, the psalmist prays, God, would you give us these things that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. There's the purpose. The reason he wants these things from God is so that God's way may be known everywhere. That God's saving power may be realized by all peoples in every place. This is the thrust of the psalm. Everything he's asking for, he's asking for the sake of others. And notice that word there in between verse 1 and 2. There's a little word, you might see it inscribed in your Bibles there. It's called, it's the word selah. It's the word that means to pause. It's the word that means to take this in. It's a word that means to revel in that which you just read or that which you just sung or that which you just prayed. And so there's a sense where verse 1, you ask God grace, blessing, favor. And then you, you're to pause, you're to breathe, you're to take it in. But you're not supposed to stop there. It's not a period. It's not a, an ending to a sentence. It's, it's just, okay, yes, revel. Enjoy the fact that God has been so good to you. But understand that there's a reason that far surpasses you. And so you pause. You take it in. But then you move into chap, verse 2 and you say, I, I need it. I, I want these things so that your way may be known everywhere, so that your saving power would be made known among the nations. My, we moved into a house that was built in 1908. And it has a house that was built in 1908. It's an older house. There's a lot of quirks to it. There's a lot of things that uh, break and need attention. And uh, I'll be honest, one of the main reasons why I wanted to move into this house is because it had a wood-burning stove. And I never had a fireplace and things growing up. And so I wanted a fireplace. I was really excited about this wood-burning stove in the living room. And, and I walked in. We, weren't, we hadn't even unpacked our boxes before. I am trying. I think it might have even been July. I just wanted to light this thing. So I'm putting wood in this wood-burning stove. And light it up and next thing I know smoke is just billowing out of this thing filling the living room my house smelled like a campsite for the next two weeks it wasn't apparently the previous owners just kind of set it in there giving the impression that we had this functional stove in our living room but it was just it's nothing it's useless it's just this big eyesore now in our house but but one of the cool things about a wood-burning stove if you've ever been around one it's probably good that it doesn't work because I do have three little kids and if you light a wood-burning stove, you know that the way they're designed is to emanate heat, right? The moment you light the fire, heat just emanates. It moves in all t- directions, and it's hot to the touch. And so it just kind of emanates and presses heat throughout the room just by burning. How it works. It's different from a stove, right? It's different from an oven. You go into the kitchen, and you light your stove or your oven, your regular uh, kitchen appliance. You light it, and... What happens to the heat? The heat stays contained. It's concentrated in the oven, but it's not really projecting heat outside of itself. It's not not really going anywhere or doing anything. It's just concerned with that which is inside of the oven. Well, when it comes to God's grace and his blessing and his favor in our lives, understand that the purpose of his goodness towards us in Jesus is to light our souls in such a way where we spiritually speaking, function like a wood-burning stove where the heat of his goodness towards us doesn't stay concentrated within us like a stove but it, or like an oven, but it emanates from us more like a wood-burning stove. So we want that. We want God to light us up so that heat would just emanate from our lives from our church and we would have an impact warming up the world for his glory this is essentially what the what the psalmist is praying for in verses one and two be gracious bless me let your face shine upon me but not for me not just for me for others light my soul and let the heat of your grace and blessing and favor just emanate from me that's that's what we're going for in this psalm. But then notice the direction it, it takes. It says, or the scope of it in verse 2, that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among all nations. But then listen to the emphasis in verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. And there's that pause again. Then in verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Who are the peoples? Who are the nations? Now when you hear that language in the Old Testament or when you hear that same language echoed by Jesus in the Great Commission when he's standing before his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Understand that Jesus and the Bible is not referring strictly to geopolitical nations. It's not talking about the United States of America. It's not talking about Sierra Leone. It's not talking about the nation of Japan or India. It's not talking about geopolitical uh, countries that have borders and a particular government. That's not what nations and peoples refer to in this passage or in the Great Commission. What he's getting after here when he talks about I want all the peoples to praise you, all the peoples to find their gladness in you and what Jesus is getting after in the Great Commission is an emphasis on all the types of people in the world saying these are groups of people who are marked out by a shared culture, a shared ethnicity, a shared language, a shared history, a shared value. And what that does is that creates a lot more Peoples, or a lot more nations than you see when you look on a map. You take India, for example. India, it is said, there are about 2,500 people groups in India alone. You take the city of Seattle. Seattle Public Schools say there are about a hundred languages spoken in our schools. There are an estimated 200 tribal tongues spoken in our vicinity, in the greater Seattle area. So when it comes to having a global mentality, understand that we're not simply talking about crossing national borders. We are talking about engaging all types of peoples with the realities of the gospel. And this is something you and I can engage in without ever having to buy a passport. Now, I would encourage you to buy a passport. It's good as a follower of Jesus to kind of have that ready. And grace God says, okay, I want you to go across this border, or across this culture to make much of Jesus amongst these people, to engage them, to emanate what I've done in you uh, for them. And that, that's a good thing to do. But you don't have to have a passport to, to carry out this purpose. What you have to have is a perspective that says, the borders of my heart are broadening and expanding so that a compassionate concern is gripping me for all types of people in this city and all types of people in this country and all types of people throughout the world. That's where we are going. That's what global mentality is, is, would, will ultimately drive us to. And essentially what this does is you and I begin to think about the way in which we engage this city and the way in which we do all the things that we do as we are lit by the gospel. As as we are engaging, we should engage a wide swath of humanity. One of the things I love about the Hallows Church is how different we are. I love the various ethnicities that gather together on a regular basis to worship in this space on a weekly basis. I love seeing all types of people identifying with Christ together in this church. My prayer is that that would continue. One of my biggest fears is to step into a room with a bunch of people who look just like me or act just like me or have my same value, whatever. I, I don't, that, that's a fear of mine. And so I love the way God is growing us and building us and knitting us together because it is indicative of his heart for all types of people in the world. And our church should be a microscopic picture of that grand reality, of that grand design when you think about not only Psalm 67, but you think about Matthew 28 when Jesus emphasizes the nations in the lives of his disciples. But then you look back at verses 3-5 through and you get something about the motive, what ultimately drives us to all types of people, what drives us to the nations, what drives us to the peoples. Well, it's a motivation that might surprise some of you because some of you think when maybe you've been around Christianity and you heard guys like me talk about missions, whatever the case may be, and you walked away thinking, well, now I feel guilty because uh, there are all these people who haven't heard the name of Jesus or now I feel guilty because I feel like um, I'm not... Uh, doing enough to to love and serve those who might not be like me or to get the gospel out or whatever the case may be, notice what the motivation is in verses 3 through 5. The motivation in this psalm is not guilt. The motivation in this psalm is gladness. It is gladness that drives us to the nations. He's saying, look, when you find your heart glad in God and you are satisfied in God and you are resting in God and you are joyful in God, that dynamic in your heart will emanate from you and you will find a desire to see other people finding joy and gladness in God, that other people would experience the grace and mercy, the favor and blessing that God has for us in Jesus our motivation is gladness. It's not guilt. And that makes a world of difference in how we approach this thing called mission or how we approach the, life, the, the way we are to receive the blessing of God into our lives as we try to use it for the welfare of other people. But also know that when we talk about this idea of joy and gladness, that some of you might not have much joy and gladness in your heart right now. Maybe you entered this room and there's a dullness to your relationship with Christ. There's a dullness to your gladness in God because maybe some things have gone down or you're in a stretch of life that's just been hard and the grind of life is just kind of wearing you down and you're wondering, well, what does that mean for me? If I'm not very joyful or glad in God, uh, is there any hope for me in light of this picture in Psalm 67? And to that, I would say yes. And to that, I would say, think back on Passion Week. What was it that drove Jesus to the cross? Why did Jesus go to the cross when he entered Jerusalem? Do you think there was a lot of joy and gladness in Jesus when he entered the Garden of Gethsemane? When he walked into the Garden of Gethsemane and he's wrestling with the will of the Father, he knows the Father who said, you're going to the cross, you're going to drink the cup of my justice, of my judgment, of my wrath. That's going to happen. And Jesus is a smart guy. He understood what that meant, and so he began to think through drinking this cup, and he even asked, God, would you, if there's any other way, let it be so. Would you take this cup from me? But ultimately, he said, not my will, but your will be done. But there wasn't a lot of gladness. There wasn't a lot of joy in the immediate moment of Gethsemane. He was under such stress and strain that you know that Jesus fell before God in prayer, and he was so stressed and so sorrowful in that moment that the capillaries underneath, the, underneath his skin began to bust and he began to bleed, sweat and blood mixed and mingled, dropping from his brow as he sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane wrestling through. That, that's not a very joyful picture, is it? That's not a very glad moment. But he kept going, he kept pressing in. What was it that caused Jesus to get up and keep going? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 would tell us Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 would tell us that it was the joy that was set before Jesus. It was a joy that was in front of him that caused him to endure the cross, despising its shame, to go through all that he went through on Passion Week. It was a joy that was before him, not necessarily a joy that was driving him or that he was sensing in Gethsemane. And when it comes to you and I being swept up into the dynamic of Psalm 67, when joy and gladness becomes a motivating factor in our lives, understand that we are living for a joy that is set before us. And what that requires from us is faith, because faith sees that I may not be feeling very joyful, I may not... Feel much gladness in God in this moment, but in faith, I'm believing that it's waiting around the corner. There is a joy set before me, and I'm moving in faith towards that. That's what faith does. Faith has this uncanny uncanny ability of bringing the future into the present and living a light in light of that which is set before us. That's what faith does. On the flip side of that, unbelief doesn't. What unbelief does is unbelief takes your given situation or your present moment and projects that into the future. So what happens if we're struggling with joy and gladness in God, and if that's not a very strong motivation in our discipleship, we think, okay, well, if I'm not very joyful in Jesus, then he must not be that good. Or if I'm not glad in God right now, then then he must not be that satisfying, He he must not be wanting to show me grace and blessing and favor. And so I'm just going to take this bad feeling, this bad sense that I have right now, and I'm going to project that into the future, drawing the conclusion that my present is forever. But that's unbelief. You know as well as I do, if you've been walking through G- with Jesus through the world that is, that yes, as you do so, every day isn't better than the day before. We're not always exploding with joy and gladness in an exuberant countenance-showing kind of way. That's not real. This is why I love the Psalms so much because the Psalms are some of the most real writings you can read about life in a fallen world in the Bible. The Psalms touch on every aspect of the human condition. Every emotion is present there. Every frustration is present there. There's even a moment when David, who wrote a lot of the Psalms, when he's struggling with his joy, He's struggling with his joy simply because there was sin in his life. And and because he had sinned, he had lost his joy. His gladness was dampened because of something specific that went down in his life. And then in Psalm 51, what does he say to God? He comes to God in prayer, faith, saying, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore it. It's not there right now. Would you restore to me the joy of your salvation? Why would he have to ask for something if what he had was supposed to be full throttle, full tilt, 24-7? Obviously it wasn't obviously there was a need for David to come before God and say, God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I need your help. Obviously there's a reason for the people of Israel to come before God in verse one and say, God, would you be gracious to us? Would you bless us? Would you let your face shine upon us? There was a reason there. They needed for that those realities to be rekindled in their heart and so they would come together in faith praying in that direction, looking towards The few hoping the future to be brought into the present that what God has promised to do and be for his people he would do and be for his people to some degree even now faith bringing the future into the present. And you see this when you end the psalm in verses six and seven. Because as the psalmist moves through this language and he's emphasizing joy and gladness and how this is what drives us, but it's also that which we want to see other people come to find and rest, this gladness, this singing for joy, this rejoicing and worshiping the God who made them and the God who redeems them. And then you get to verse 6 and you see this dynamic again. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, what? Shall bless us. It's future oriented, right? It's faith. God's going to bless us. God will bless us. God shall bless us. Again, in verse 7, God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. That's faith, right? That's confidence. But again, what accounted for the psalmist's confidence in those two verses? Well, you look at verse 6, and they look. remember, as the earth had yielded, has yielded its increase, they were given a glimpse of God's goodness towards them with the fact that they had food to eat. And because they had that glimpse, they were able to look to the future for a greater blessing. They could trust the goodness of God to be better for them in some day ahead. And what I would contend is that all the all the, the trajectory of Psalm 67 with its emphasis on grace, with blessing, with favor, on its emphasis on joy and gladness, with its emphasis on all the peoples in the world, with its emphasis on this future blessing, Psalm 67 drives us to the gospel, which then ultimately drives us to the end of all things. When you get to the end of the Bible, what happens? We are given a picture of where everything is heading. We're given a picture of all nations, all peoples, finding joy and gladness in God, but it's in the future. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Listen to this description. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. After this, I, referring to John, one of the original apostles' disciples, he looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches. That's that's where Palm Sunday is, one of the images of this day. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There is coming a day when a remnant of every people group on the planet rallies around the throne of Jesus singing salvation belongs to our God. That's the day we're living towards. And we live towards that day by faith. And so in faith, we come to God regularly and we make this prayer constant on our lips. God be gracious to us. Bless us. Let your face shine upon us. Why? So that Your way may be known among the earth so that your saving power would be made known among the nations. Why do you want God to be good to you? Do you want God to be good to you just for you? Or do you want God to be good to you for the sake of the nations, for the sake of all the peoples in the world? I assure you the difference makes all the difference. If we are going to be a people who experiences the rich goodness of God, his grace and his blessing and his favor as a people, as a church, we must seek it with an eye towards the other. God, give us whatever you deem necessary for us to lead other people into the white-hot enjoyment of you, that more and more people of every ilk would come to trust the gospel and find joy and gladness in Jesus, that we would live to that end. And in those days when we're struggling with that motivation, in those days when the world that is is pressing upon us and joy is lacking, gladness is is fading, would would you shore up our faith? Would you help us to come humbly before you, constantly asking, God be gracious, God bless us, God, let your face shine upon us. We want, we want your will, your purpose, your desire for the nations to be satisfied. So would you give us, would you work within us in such a way that would cause all of your love and your justice and your compassion and your fairness to emanate out from us, your people in the church. So, we want this prayer to be constant on our lips. We want this prayer in Psalm 67 to captivate our lives, the purpose, the thrust, the trajectory of it. And I assure you, church, the Hallows Church, who we are to be in this city and who we are to be in this world, if you and I are seeking the grace, the blessing, and the favor of God, not simply for our sake, but for the sake of others. We're going to experience God do things in and through our midst in ways we've never experienced before. God promises to bless the work that He has called His people to do, this desire to see all peoples come and sing for joy, all peoples to come and find their gladness ultimately in God. And so let's be this prayerful as a people. Let's live by faith and ask God to bless our church to the degree that we square up with his purpose to bring blessing and grace and favor to all the peoples in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I ask that you would be gracious to us. I ask that you would bless us and let your face shine upon us so that your way may be known throughout the city of Seattle and beyond, so that your saving power would be realized in the hearts and minds of all types of people all over the planet. God, would you let that be? Would you make that a reality? God, would you give us grace to live by faith towards that end? Father, would you do such a work within us that your saving power would emanate from us in ways that would bring your blessing to the world, in ways that would Lead others into finding joy and gladness in you. God, I ask and I pray that you would do that for us. In Jesus' name, amen.